Welcome back into the Trojan Talk podcast. This is Ryan Young, publisher of Trojansports.com and your pilot for this program. And we have a full, 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 full show for you today. Mostly about USC recruiting, looking back on the last six weeks as the Trojans reeled in 14 commits since June 1st. And while the book is not closed on all those prospects who visited in May and June, of course, USC is still waiting on a few very high-profile targets to make their final decisions. Nonetheless, I want to put kind of a bow on uh, this recruiting gauntlet we all went through the last month and a half. And to do that, I wanted to give you a variety of voices and perspectives. And so we are joined by four of our Rivals National Recruiting Analysts. And we'll start with Rivals National Recruiting Director, Adam Gorney, who, of course, is is our go-to guy for all things West Coast recruiting. He gave us his perspective on kind of the highlights of what the Trojans did this last month and also where he thinks things stand with remaining key targets like linebacker Kingston Viliamu Asa, who will decide his commitment or announce his commitment on July 23rd. Five-star safety Peyton Woodyard, also from St. John Bosco High School, who is still committed to Georgia, but continues to evaluate all options, USC being one of those options. And four-star cornerback Zabian Brown from Mother Day High School, who makes his decision Sunday, this Sunday, July 9th. And so we got Adam to weigh in on all of those. Some other topics, we talked a little bit about QB recruiting, SoCal recruiting, et cetera, et cetera. Good talk with Adam. Then we bounced it all the way across the country to the East Coast, to our guy Adam Friedman, our rivals analyst for the Northeast, Mid-Atlantic regions. And I wanted to get more perspective about USC's latest commit, that being three-star defensive tackle David Pale-Pale from Pennsylvania, who made his announcement last week, as well as his thoughts on where things stand with four-star outside linebacker Jalen Harvey from Maryland, who visited USC last month and recently postponed his planned commitment announcement. We get into what that means for the schools involved, including USC. Then we head down the coast, down the East Coast, that is, to John Garcia Jr., our new Rivals analyst for the Southeast, who I must say has done a fantastic job since coming aboard a couple months ago. He was a huge help to us through the May and June stretch there, getting reaction from USC's official visitors from Georgia and Florida and giving us the latest on those guys. I want to look back on on the success USC had in the Southeast over this last month, getting three commits out of Georgia and Florida. Get John's thoughts on kind of the presence Lincoln Riley and the Trojans have in that region right now. What led to, to that success and a little bit more about each of those guys. And he had a really good perspective. We went pretty in-depth on safety Jarvis Boatwright, from Clearwater, Florida, and four-star tight end Walter Matthews from Hiram, Georgia, and four-star offensive lineman Jason Zandamella from Clearwater, Florida as well. And then we kick it over to Texas, which, of course, is always a key, key area for USC recruiting. And we talked to Cole Patterson, our rivals analyst for the Texas, Oklahoma, Louisiana, et cetera, area. But our focus was on Texas and it was an eventful few weeks for the Trojans in the Lone Star State. I was actually out there myself to track down some of the key targets, and USC won a big recruiting battle for four-star offensive lineman Makai Sena from Arlington, beating out Texas and Texas A&M. 
They reeled in a commitment from four-star cornerback Braylon Conley from Humble, Texas, down near Houston. Meanwhile, USC lost a couple of recruiting battles as well in Texas as receiver Draylon Miller and linebacker Ty Anthony Smith chose Texas A&M. A little background, I actually started recording a podcast while I was in Texas and kind of wanted to preview that big week that was going to come with all those announcements. And I had Cole Patterson come on and we recorded and then the recruiting winds shifted before I could publish the pod. And so we re-recorded and the recruiting winds shifted again as things kept changing, especially with uh, Draylon Miller and Ty Anthony Smith. And so I just ended up having to hold press pause and everything and, and wait for it all to play out. And now we will talk to Cole about the guys at USC did get, get his scouting reports on Makai Sena and Braylon Conley, and then talk a little bit about four-star running back Taylor Tatum, a top 50 national prospect who remains one of the key uncommitted targets for the Trojans. USC and Oklahoma are the favorites. If you are on Trojansports.com, you saw my lengthy interview with Taylor Tatum as I went up to Longview, Texas, way up in northeast Texas, really closer to Louisiana than any major Texas city. It's a visit with, with Taylor and get the latest on his recruitment. And I thought it was a really interesting interview where he basically told me he, he's truly conflicted. And he he thought for sure he'd be making a decision soon after those official visits and and definitely wanted to have it done before the summer was over so we could focus on the senior season. And now he's not sure if that's going to happen. It, it still could. It's, it's still his goal to decide here in the next month or so. But he wants to make sure it's right. He doesn't want to change his mind three months from now and decommit or make the wrong choice and be in the transfer portal a year or two from now. So I, I think that race is a lot closer than people think. Coming off of Oklahoma official visit, everyone thought the Sooners were the clear, far and away favorite. I think they probably are the favorite, but I don't think it's by a wide margin. I think it's much closer than people think, and USC is definitely still a heavy consideration for him. But we will get Cole Patterson's perspective on Taylor Tatum. And that wraps up our USC recruiting tour around the country. But that's not the end of the show. No, no, no. I had a couple segments that I had taped a couple weeks ago that were supposed to be part of that podcast that I was going to publish from Texas. And they got put on hold, too. So we're just going to give it all to you right now in one giant serving of podcast content. And what are those segments? Well, funny you should ask. I was getting ready to tell you. They are Max Brown, the former USC quarterback and our resident Trojansports.com analyst who has been a regular part of this program for four-plus years and will continue to be so through this upcoming football season. Max came on to talk about NIL and the House of Victory Collective as Max and I were both at the House of Victory QBU event a few weeks back in Newport Beach, where USC had 12 former and current quarterbacks, everyone from Paul McDonald to Carson Palmer to Mark Sanchez, Matt Barkley, Cody Kessler, Caleb Williams, Miller Moss, and the current guys. And it was a really interesting event. Max has been to a few of those dinners, collective dinners, NIL dinners. And I want us to talk about what those events are like and, and how USC is going about trying to really get its NIL fundraising off the ground and Lincoln Riley and basketball coaches Andy Enfield and Lindsey Gottlieb and beach volleyball coach Dane Blanton were all also there and made presentations to the crowd and just spoke about why NIL is 
not a luxury. It is a necessity for the Trojans to compete nationally in all those sports, especially football. So Max and I will kind of give you a sneak peek inside what what it's like going to one of those NIL dinners and his thoughts on that whole realm. And then we also talked about facilities and the announcement last month that USC is building a three-story football performance center right next to the, the practice fields that will be a, as Lincoln Riley said, a game changer for the program. Max being a former player, a former top national recruit, I want to get his perspective on why facilities matter, how much they matter to recruits, to players, what he thought about USC's facilities when he was on campus as a player. We cover all that. But that still is not the end of the show. No, no, no. We have one more segment, and we really mix it up at the end, change directions, get away from football, and talk to USC baseball coach Andy Stankiewicz, who makes his second appearance on the podcast and reflects back on his very successful first year at the helm with USC, leading the Trojans to a 34-win season, their best season since 2015, and really one of the two best seasons for the program in the last decade and a half. So good, good talk with Andy Stankiewicz to wrap it up. So that is a full show, recruiting, NIL, facilities, baseball. Let's do it. No more time to waste. Let's bring on Rivals National Recruiting Director Adam Gorney, a frequent guest of the program. Always appreciate his time. Adam, thanks for coming back on the program. Yeah, of course, sir. Big month for USC across the country. Commitments from the Northeast, from the Southeast, from Texas, but of course many out West. And we've talked about these guys on numerous occasions individually. I want to just ask you more broadly, as you look back at what USC did this month, who was the most significant West Coast commitment for the Trojans? Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting because I remember on the last podcast we were talking about people being worried about them only having a few commitments. And, you know, I said, you know, settle down. June June is going to be like a busy month. It's going to be essentially like as busy as signing day. And, and, and they loaded up really big. I think the biggest commit out West would be Ryan Pelham. And the reason is because they pretty much had no shot with him just a few months ago and then really re-engaged with him. And he's, you know, a very electric wide receiver who can do a lot of things, play both play both ways, and really fits Lincoln Riley's system really well. There are definitely some other big ones, Marcellus Williams, Dakota Fields. You know, they've done well out west, especially with local guys and, and across the country with a lot of guys that we saw over the summer. Um, but out west, I think Ryan Pelham is the big one. How do you assess USC's overall local recruiting at this point? From You've seen this cycle and, and really since Riley's taken over. Yeah, it's been interesting because this cycle, they have gone everywhere. And, you know, we, we were talking a few years ago about this, that for USC, you know, to be really good in the Pac-12, they could basically not leave 20 miles from around their school. But if they're going to win national championships, you're not going to be able to get offensive and defensive linemen solely from Southern California um, to compete with Georgia and Alabama. Um, I've talked about this before. E- even now, you can go into the Southeast and look at offensive linemen that look like more grown men than the USC starting offensive linemen. Um, that is changing, and but that is also the reason why they went to Florida for Zandamella. Um, you know, you know, they even going to Colorado for Trader. He's a big 6'6", 300-pound kid. So, you know, they do need to... You know, it's easy to get skill guys here. It's easy to get quarterbacks here um, if that's what they want to do. But for for, for both lines, they're going to have to go nationally. That's what they did. 
Um, and that's, and, and Lincoln Riley can pull those guys. USC has a lot to offer and they're not backing down from it. They hit Texas super hard. He obviously still has a lot of, of connections there from his time at Oklahoma, um, and being from there. So I think all of that kind of stuff is playing to their benefit when they're trying to build, you know, really a holistic recruiting class here. They have had success out West, though, especially with, with receivers and defensive backs. But this comes up all the time on our, on our Trojan Talk board, the notion of putting a fence around Southern California. And it's kind of been my uh, perspective that that's not possible anymore, just with the way these uh, top prospects spend their high school years traveling around the country, going to camps and seven-on-seven tournaments and making friends with other national recruits all around the country. It's not like you're you're isolated where you grew up until you make this big decision. Now these kids are familiar with all these areas all around. Do you think it's still possible for a program like USC to ever, quote, put a fence around the, their local area? It's, it's hard to say because when they win big, a lot of kids are going to want to go there. Like the Bryce Youngs of the world who were committed there that then went to Alabama um, would probably have stayed, but it is certainly much harder than it used to be under the Pete Carroll years. I mean, when Pete Carroll was at USC and Mac Brown was at Texas, they would basically, you know, especially Mac Brown, he would he would have one junior day and basically fill his entire recruiting class. <laughs> um, those were the easy days. Now kids are playing on seven on seven teams from Southern California in Miami, and they're traveling every single weekend. So in, in, a, in a way, the world getting smaller has, has hurt those teams. Um, Texas has to go to a lot of places for players now. USC will, will recruit Southern California very well, especially if they continue to win and win big. But there's no doubt Alabama and Georgia are coming in here. Clemson came for a quarterback. Uh, Ohio State is working everybody. Um, you know, Michigan is going to get their guys. And then you have Oregon coming down. Um, and getting a lot of players as well. So there's a lot because the world has gotten smaller and players, you know, can FaceTime their parents and they can, they've seen all the players around the country. And, you know, even now, I mean, June was, you know, guys just go to every school to check it out before they make their decisions. I don't think that was the case. You know, when Matt Leiner, I, I talked with Matt Leiner about this and he was like, I didn't even, I didn't even know any of the other quarterbacks in my class. It wasn't, it wasn't like that. So, you know, I knew USC, USC was up the road. That's where I was going. So it's not necessarily USC striking out on guys. It's just that it's a lot harder to keep them. Now, if they start winning at the level of Georgia um, and then getting to the playoff regularly, I think a lot of those guys who were leaving during the Clay Helton era stay, um, but it's still a, a big challenge. Yeah. And another point there is, with NIL, a lot of the schools have made a, uh, an emphasis of saying, we can get your parents to, to all these games. And maybe, yeah. I, yeah, I don't know how you frame it with what the schools can actually say and can't say, but you get my point that it's now easier for families to, to go see their kids play away from home, and, and that's another factor to deal with. Well, the Trojans aren't done yet, and, and well, they hope they're not done yet, especially locally, where there's several still outstanding, uncommitted, or committed yet not fully decided targets that they are waiting to hear on. And I want to touch on those guys. Kingston Villiamuasa, the four-star linebacker. He's going to decide July 23rd between USC, Ohio State, and Notre Dame. I know you, you've written that you think the Trojans are still probably coming up third in that race. 
We went out and saw him last week. He had a USC shirt on. Of course, that means nothing, but it always gets everyone talking and thinking. Uh, what are you hearing that, that kind of makes you think that it's it's Notre Dame or Ohio State? Yeah, USC did pretty much everything possible that they could do to to keep him home. I mean, they, they basically reserved an entire official visit weekend for him and his teammate Peyton Woodyard to come in and, and really get a feel for it. You know, he spent a lot of time at the business school. His mother's very serious about academics. So is he. They gave the pitch that, you know, he could stay home and do whatever he wanted to do post-football. Um, that would be huge rather than going to the Midwest and not necessarily starting over, but certainly not having the base that he would have in Southern California. And that's before all the football stuff. So um, I think I think they've made a big-time impression. Um, it's just that for so long – uh, he has loved Notre Dame, and he's loved Ohio State, and he has a tremendous connection with James Laronitis. And there's just a lot to, to factor in there. So, um, you know, from the people that I've talked to, USC absolutely impressed him, and he loved it there. It's just that those relationships at Notre Dame and Ohio State have, have sort of gone past the, the USC relationship. Now, in the last few weeks, as he's really making a final decision here, um, that could certainly change, but my sense is that Notre Dame, Ohio State are leading for him. You mentioned Peyton Woodyard. We talked to him this week as well as he wrapped up his month of visits, still committed to Georgia, but visited USC, Ohio State, and Alabama. I thought maybe the most uh, telling comments that we got in our interview with him was that the most important thing to him is feeling truly wanted, not just wanted, but needed somewhere. And I think that that's an, uh, a pitch that USC could probably make more strongly than a Georgia could make. But at this point, what is your pulse on Peyton Woodyard? Yeah, my, yeah. From, from talking to him after that USC visit, it was that USC thoroughly impressed him. I mean, he ate at Nobu in Malibu. I mean, how can't you be impressed? And he loved it. So <clears throat> the, the sense that I'm getting is that, um, you know, he wants to see some of the season. He wants to see how the defense looks but that this one is still very much undecided. Um, he has a great relationship with Fran Brown at Georgia, and that could be playing a big-time factor. Um, but if USC continues to press, I think they have a decent chance of flipping him. His family is here. He's very close to them. Um, they're, they're at all the events, and they, they know all of those things. And then, like you said, the wanted factor. And then this is no offense to Peyton Woodyard, but, I mean, Georgia will be just fine getting him or not getting him they're they're going to be competing for national championships with elite players for a very long time under kirby smart so you know usc has definitely a need for very highly skilled players on the on the defense and then and then the development question comes into play so um you know i think i think more than kingston there's there's a chance that you could flip peyton woodyard from Georgia, especially if the defense looks strong early in the season, which it should because we're not going to talk about it, but the schedule is pretty easy. <laughs> <laughs> You're feeling this is going to drag on for a while, though, and we won't have a true resolution on this until maybe sometime in the fall or after the fall? Yeah, I do. I mean, you know, uh, and, and kids take visits when they're committed, but kids often, you know, and this isn't a placeholder commitment by any stretch, uh, but there's really no reason – even if in his heart he wants to be at USC to decommit from Georgia at this point. So I think that, uh, you know, he's just kind of, you know, kind of figuring it out still, seeing how things are going. USC definitely impressed him in many, many ways. 
um, and there's a long way to go for this one. Very good. And then one more local guy who makes this decision this Sunday, July 9th, four-star Rivals 100 cornerback Zabian Brown from Mother Day. It seems to be a USC-Alabama battle there. What is your latest read on him? Yeah, my, it's hard. It's hard to make a final prediction on him um, because uh, he just doesn't talk a lot. And so, even when he does give you quotes, there's not much there. He's he's going to be pretty guarded in what he's doing. But my sense is that Alabama is going to get him. I think the people down there feel pretty good about it. I don't think he's going to be able to turn them down. Um, you know, with that being said, USC. It is it is USC and Alabama. I think Ohio State is pretty much out of this completely but i but my sense is that alabama probably leads heading into his decision is is it any factor you think that usc already has three four-star cornerbacks committed with marcellus williams dakota fields and braylon conley yeah i i i think that's also telling on usc's part to say you know we probably feel second on brown so we're gonna we're gonna go on these other guys and not hold back now, Brown is a guy that can play safety, too. He plays more safety in, in high school. He can definitely play both. Um, if they if USC gets him, it's, it's, a, it's a very big pickup because he's very, very good. But the three they got are really talented guys as well. The circle back on the earlier point about keeping the local guys home and everything, at, with Xavier Brown being a modern day guy, it, we kind of have to acknowledge the fact that USC has not reeled in a lot of the Monarchs in this class and – uh, losing, well, not it's not done yet, but Brandon Baker and DeAndre Carter, the big offensive linemen, looking like they're headed elsewhere. Uh, quarterback Elijah Brown obviously committed to Stanford, and it's unclear how much USC really prioritized him in this class, but nonetheless. Yeah. And then Aiden Breland, the defensive tackle, hasn't really been strongly on the radar with USC. Do you, do you make anything of that, uh, or is it really just individual cases that kind of coincidentally line up here? Or it's not a, a good match for USC and those modern day guys. Yeah, it is strange. It is. It is. It is definitely something to kind of continue to watch because I was talking to Darius Dixon about this a little bit at, at an event we had in Atlanta last week, and he said that you know he loves Dante, but he you know and and he's had a great relationship with USC, but when he named his top three, USC wasn't in it. So I mean, if you go down that list of players, especially Baker. Um, you know, Carter could be, you know, kind of a hit or miss guy, could be a guard, could be a tackle, who knows, but Baker is pretty good. You know, Nate Frazier is really, really good. Yeah, I didn't mention Jordan that. Davison, yep. very good. Nasir Wyatt. I mean, they, they, and they're 25, 26. Those, those young classes are really loaded up. So, um, it could be just sort of a one-off class of guys that, didn't want to stay or there was a sort of a transition as their recruitment was starting um, into Riley. But, um, you know, it, it will be interesting to see. I, I will also say, you know, that the, the modern day guys, other than the St. Brown, uh, other than Amon Ra and, and Equinemius too, he's had a nice NFL career, haven't really blown the socks off you know, over the years. So as a team, you know, and you see this in high school a lot, uh, as a team, they're phenomenal players. They're, they were coached incredibly well. They dominated everybody they played. Um, as individuals, they went off and, and didn't really, you know, compete at that highest level and, and have, you know, illustrious NFL careers. So there might be a little backing off of it, but I, I don't think it would be wise in the long run because there are just so many good players that go there. It's really a feeder system. I mean, if you look at, at what Modern Day does is, you know, 
they'll look at the public school kids and see who's doing well or kids at other private schools and doing well and then bring them onto their team. So, you know, it's sort of foolish not to recruit really heavily at that school just from a numbers, just from a quality and a quantity perspective. So we'll see if this continues into 2025. It seems to be a little bit, though, and 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 I think in that sense, it, it is a little worrisome. And, and certainly you would have included Bryce Young there along with Amon Raz. Um, yeah. Right. Um, yeah. I think the wait-and-see approach is the, is the right approach because you, you can't ignore the fact that just in the previous cycle they had Relief Brown and Damani Jackson and C.J. Williams right. initially before he transferred to Wisconsin, and a lot of those were you know, prior relationships with Riley and the staff back to their Oklahoma days. But nonetheless, they got those guys. So uh, I personally have, have kind of quelled that uh, whole conversation whenever it arises on the board for now. But, yeah, if it continues and, and we go into 25 and it's the same deal, then maybe there's more to look at there. Very lastly, Adam, I, I want to just talk about Julian Lewis, the 26th quarterback out of Carrollton, Georgia, who may or may not reclassify. Uh, really seems to be the next important quarterback target for the Trojans after it looks like they may come up without one this year or as things stand right now. Uh, what makes Julian Lewis special? What are you hearing about the reclassification talk? And how strongly do you think USC is positioned for him right now? Yeah, if there, and I hate making these lofty comparisons, but if there is someone who's similar playing style to Bryce Young, it's Julian Lewis. Mm. Um, he started as a freshman against really good Georgia competition and torched everybody and put up huge numbers. And a lot of the, he just wasn't dinking and dunking down the field. I mean, he was making some big time throws. Now, the other thing is, is like I had to get this out of my mind when I covered Bryce Young, too, is he's not really physically all that impressive. He's about six feet tall. He's probably about an inch taller than Bryce. Um, but, you know, still light, uh, still just looks like a kid, has braces, the whole thing. Um, but is so talented. I mean, he was, a, I saw him at Steve Clarkson's quarterback retreat in Santa Monica and Julian Sain had like just an incredibly awesome day. Um, but Julian Lewis was right there. I mean, on the targets, on all the tough throws, everything, he was, he was really, really good. So when you saw Bryce at the same stage, it was like, God, can this guy throw, even throw the ball 30 yards? And then he would make every single pinpoint <laughs> throw right on time. Yep. It was amazing. Julian Lewis was exactly the same way. So I would not be surprised if USC doesn't really go heavy after a quarterback in this class and be and not be surprised if Julian Lewis reclassifies to 25 and looks heavily at USC. When I talked to him, he said he doesn't want to go to a school that takes a quarterback in the class before him. So um, what's interesting is Texas was another school that he was very, very interested in, and they took K.J. Lacey in his class. Now, Lacey's very, very good. Uh, in the class before him, so uh, Lacey's very, very good. Um, but that would me that would give me a sign that hey, that might hurt Texas over the long haul with Lewis if he stays, um, and you know if he reclasses to twenty five. So uh, I think Georgia is going to be obviously a factor here. It's right down the road. Um, there's going to be a, there's going to be a lot of influence there. No one's going to give up on the kid. But he's been to Southern California a lot. He likes Lincoln Riley a whole ton. Um, and I think it, it would fit the the scenario if he reclasses from 26 to 25. USC doesn't take a quarterback in 24. 
and then takes him in 25, that would be the perfect situation that he's looking for anyway in terms of his recruitment. Great stuff. As always, Adam, we appreciate it. I know it's a busy time. Thanks for fitting us in. All right, man. Talk to you later. Okay, back on the podcast, Rivals National Recruiting Analyst Adam Friedman, who was our expert on all things East Coast recruiting. Adam, thanks for joining us. How you doing? Good, good. Trying to catch my breath after all of these commitments during the early part of July here, and uh, we've got a few more over the next couple of weeks before there's a real break. And then uh, coming out of the dead period, we've got visits coming up before the season really starts. So um, you know, trying to finish strong here before a, a nice little vacation. Yeah, it's it's been really a six-week gauntlet here uh, since really mid to late May. Uh, especially for USC, which has just racked up 14 commitments since the start of June. We had John last month to talk about USC winning the recruiting battle for outside linebacker Elijah Newby out of Connecticut. And as we now put a bow on kind of this last month for USC recruiting, I wanted to get you back on to talk about their latest East Coast win, three-star defensive tackle David Pale Pale. Is that how we're pronouncing it? Yeah, that's what I've been going with, David Palepale. Um, he's a really impressive guy, and I, I think he's probably a little underrated, but that's uh, maybe a product of not getting a lot of exposure early on and trying to learn about the level of competition he plays. But Palepale brings um, pretty much exactly what USC has been looking for on the interior of the defensive line, a disruptive big guy who can shoot gaps, or he can uh, hold up against the run. I'm excited to see what he is really all about this senior year. He's someone we're really going to be taking a close look at. But uh, an impressive win for USC on the recruiting trail. Penn State appeared to be the the heavy favorite until he took that uh, official visit out to Los Angeles at the end of June. And Sean Nua really hit, hit it out of the park. They had a relationship, the two of them, going back a while when he was back up in Michigan. But uh, that, that they really hit all the right buttons when Pali Pali brought his family out to Los Angeles. And it uh, obviously worked out well for the Trojans. They took the lead coming out of that visit and never really looked back after uh, after that visit when Pali Pali committed on the first of this month. I thought your interview with him after his commitment was really interesting where he pretty much said that uh, initially, USC really didn't have his full uh, attention. He took the unofficial visit earlier, still wasn't truly feeling the Trojans. And it wasn't until that official visit that they, they really put their full presentation on and sold him. What was your surprise factor when he made that announcement? Um, it was interesting because he he said, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of talk about Penn State. He wasn't really comparing USC to Penn State. He was comparing it to Michigan, especially when Coach Noah was up there. Um, they had everything going, then, but when Coach Noah left and went to Los Angeles, Polly Polly was looking for basically everything that Michigan brought off the field and then found more, that and more, when he was at USC. So I think just the way they were able to present the whole university and their program to him when he was on that final official visit really sold him good stuff and and like you mentioned we're not done yet there are still more commitments to come uh, including a few of usc's official visitors who have yet to make their decision and one one more from your area and four-star outside linebacker jalen harvey who had the july 4th commitment date planned pushed that back do we know what his timeline is now for a decision yeah, it's, it's pretty unclear as to when he'll make his decision. Penn State was the heavy favorite um, and, and still continues to be the favorite. But USC and Maryland are the two teams to really 
make us think, wait a second, why is he holding off on this decision? Something could be going on here. His final official visit was to Maryland at the end of June. The Terps have, uh, you know, they do a great job recruiting locally, and uh, there's nothing more than that Mike Loxley at Maryland wants to do than, than get one over on Penn State and James Franklin up there. So uh, it could be the Terps trying to make a move here. It's been a minute since he was at USC, but that trip did leave a, a strong impact on him. It'll be interesting to see what he does and what kind of decisions are made behind the scenes during this last month or so prior to the season. He has wanted to, to make his decision before the season. He has, he said that in the past, but uh, it's really unclear as to whether or not he'll be able to get that done uh, where things stand right now. You talked to him after his USC visit. What, what was your takeaway in terms of the, the strongest pull or appeal that the Trojans kind of gave him to think about? Uh, they have a need for his for his type of playmaking ability on the defensive front. Uh, you know, they got to get more pressure on a quarterback. They got to be able to hold up against the run. Jalen does a great job using his versatility across the defensive front to play defensive end with his hand on the ground. He can play in space. He can play uh, pure linebacker and, and roam on the edge. So I think that the ability to be an early contributor is something that he's really interested in. Well, good stuff. That's all we have for you today. But with the way that USC is now pulling recruits in from all across the country, I have a feeling we'll have more opportunity in the very near future. Yeah, nationally recruiting again, USC Trojans. It's exciting to see them on the East Coast. Thanks, Ryan. I appreciate the time. Thanks, Adam. Okay, next we move down the coast to the Southeast, where John Garcia Jr. is our new rival Southeast recruiting analyst. Has already been a massive help to us in the last couple of months with updates and interviews from all those big Southeast targets the Trojans hosted in uh, May and June. And again, as we just kind of reflect back on this last month, I wanted to bring John on to, to get his perspective on, on the impact USC made in the Southeast. John, great to have you on for your first appearance on the Trojan Talk podcast. I'm, I'm feeling honored, blessed, <laughs> highly favored, and, and ready to roll. That's the feeling we want you to have. Very good, very good. <laughs> Well, uh, as you well know, and our listeners well know, USC pulled three big commitments out of the Southeast. It started with four-star safety Jarvis Boat right out of Clearwater, Florida. Then there was four-star tight end Walter Matthews from, is it Hiram, Georgia? Hiram, Georgia? Yep, Hiram. Yep. Okay. And then uh, lastly, four-star center Jason Zandamella, from, also from Clearwater, Florida, but via Mozambique originally. Yes. Interesting backstory there. I wanted to start, John, just by asking you, which of those three was the biggest surprise for you, for, for USC to come in to the Southeast and, and win a big recruiting battle? Which one of those three surprised you most? Honestly, you can make a case, Ryan, that all three were pretty surprising. I mean, I think Boltwright felt surprising just in that USC was so convicted in its evaluation of him to go ahead and prioritize him and get him on campus that first week into June and, and basically go full speed ahead. So in that regard... It was surprising, although we love on that rivals. I think we've got him higher than just about anybody else with four stars next to his name. But he just wasn't as well known as some of these other names on the list. And then I think from a who else was in it perspective, yeah, both Zandamella and Matthews had clear other programs that were at least on par with USC. I mean, Walter told us Florida was his big leader before that USC trip. And then he said it was kind of even ahead of another Gainesville trip uh, being an official visit. So you kind of said, well, if, if all things are even here and he's going back to Florida, probably going to be tough to, to be Florida here. And lo and behold, it was it was really USC and, and, and he never looked back. I think with Zondamella, it was a little bit more touch and go. Um, he says 
ever since his unofficial back in the spring, it became USC's race to lose. But I think Florida State and Oklahoma, just from a sourcing and confidence perspective, probably had as much or more than USC throughout the spring and summer months. So in terms of climbing over others, I guess Zondamella would be the biggest surprise. But in terms of a head-to-head battle, it would be Matthews or an evaluation conviction. I'd, I'd go with Boatwright. So all three at one point looked like they would be tough for USC to go out and grab, much less grabbing all three in, in what, 12 days or whatever it was in between. Yeah, yeah, good answer. And I, I think USC fans have gotten conditioned in recent years, at least the years before Lincoln Riley got here, that USC would, you know, flirt with a big Southeast prospect. They'd get them out for a visit. They'd say all the right things after the visit, what an impression it made, and yet they never won those battles. And so even going into th- to this cycle, coming off of what Riley and company did last year, I still view the, all of these East Coast guys as long shots, and I think we have to change our perspective now on that based on the results. Not only in the Southeast, we just talked to Adam Friedman, and, and they've uh, had success up in the, in the Northeast. They've had success in Texas. What, what's your impression of, of USC recruiting just as you've kind of uh, dived in head first here uh, as our new Southeast analyst and kind of the presence they're, they're creating down there? Look, that brand still means a whole heck of a lot in the college football space. So they're not going to have an issue, especially with these off-season visits. They're not going to have an issue getting the talent out to L.A. Like you said, that's something that maybe has been there for quite some time. But I think the difference is with this staff and the approach is it's not just, hey, look at the great weather and, and see the sights. There is some real depth to these visits. I think Mike Matthews was like super surprised by what he saw in L.A. Uh, Zanamella said that the unofficial made him want to schedule the official like right away. These kids are expecting the sights, the sounds and the statues and the Coliseum and all those things. But it's the second and third layers that are holding their attention. And that has to do with the head coach on down, right? That is just a, an organizational recruiting approach where you are selling your history and your tradition, which, you know, to some is easier to access than others, but really it's about updating it. How does NIL play into it? How does your brand, your name carry into, you know, what you can be beyond the field itself? And that's really the common thread that we're hearing with these guys when we talk to them is that, yeah, football-wise, look, Big Ten's going to be great. You know, you, you know Lincoln Riley's going to score points. You know this team's going to be in position to compete. That box is, is long checked. It's everything else that is starting to surprise these kids when it comes to USC. So not so much the sights and sounds of the visit, but actually getting to sit down with the administration and some of the other folks that are involved with the program that is really latching on to some of these recruits. And I think that evolution from Riley himself is going to be really critical because if you want to go to the Big Ten and compete, as, as this podcast has illustrated, you've got to do it with a national roster, not just a great West Coast roster with a couple of sprinkles elsewhere. It's got to be a true national roster from the jump, and it looks like they're headed in that direction. Very well said. And you mentioned Mike Matthews. We'll get to him in a second. But before we close the book on the on the three commits that we just mentioned, I kind of want to get your quick scattering report on each guy. And, and we'll start with Jarvis Boatwright, who, as you noted, Rivals has ranked pretty highly. And what stands out to you about Boatwright and, and the kind of player he is and his strengths? Man, he's a football player. And I think we 
in the scouting business, we can push against that so much because we want the polish, right? We want the finished product. We want to see how well he's doing at his projected position. And look, you'll get a lot of safety on his tape, but you're going to get receiver, running back, kick returner, linebacker. I mean, he's going to do a little bit of everything on Friday nights as, as basically the best player at, at Clearwater High School. And you love that. It just creates an overall athletic profile and body of work that should give you confidence and benefit of the doubt when it does come time for him to focus on one position, something he's never been able to do. But you, you talk about that versatility on a six one six two frame where you see speed, you see ball skills. The IQ is, is very easy to identify, whether he's playing offense or defense. You put all of that together and you feel really good about a modern, versatile secondary player who can play nickel safety maybe even one day line up in, in the boundary at mm. corner if you need them to and that type of talent and length not to mention you know playing against great competition in central florida all of that is something that you know collectively made us bank on him as a true blue chip recruit and if anything we might still be undervaluing him because we haven't seen him as much as we've seen some of these other you know elite prospects in the secondary in particular with Walter Matthews, he was in our Rivals 250 before the latest update and is now just outside of that. What's the overall evaluation on, on him as a tight end prospect? Uh, well, first of all, the size. I mean, it really strikes you. Seeing him, whether it's on Friday nights or, or, or on the hoof, um, he's every bit of, of six, six, six foot seven. Um, but he carries 250 incredibly well. And I think that's where you first have to dig into your side of the coin from an evaluation standpoint, because naturally you see an underclassman who's that big and what are you going to do? Well, when is this kid growing into a tackle, right? That's kind of the default there. And he knows that. So he's really done a good job of combating it and, and remaining relatively lean uh, wherever his frame allows him to. So he's, he's really tight up around the waist and still has some room to fill out if he wants to uh, in his lower half in particular. But the size really strikes you. We got to watch him a lot um, last month at the Elite 11 finals and the OT7 finals out in L.A. Uh, right when he committed, uh, he was out there getting a ton of work in. So the work ethic is really strong here. And you just like the consistency from him. You know, he's not... He's not one of these hybrid tight ends where he's running by corners, you know, and you're like, oh, my gosh, that's a, that's an alien. But he's going to work really well in the margins. You know, those intermediate routes uh, and the, the catch radius that comes with it is going to widen that margin of error uh, for the quarterback. Uh, and there's some polish there. The route running hands, everything looks uh, about as well as you could expect for a tight end uh, at this stage of, of his development. So I think for Walter, the next step is, yeah, you know, do you buy into that and become this true physical classic tight end who can uh, get out in space and do some damage? Uh, or, or do you kind of allow those tackle projections to linger? You know, that's something that um, I, I guess natural body composition and, and Walter himself will have to figure out. But we like him plenty. It wasn't that he slid more so than others uh, deserve to, to move up the ranks uh, in, in terms of this last update. But he's a, a legitimate blue chip tight end recruit uh, that we really like in a classic or modern sense. And that's not something to say about it. I've tried to explain that cause and effect in the rankings uh, every time they come out that guys don't necessarily get moved down. But if uh, a bunch move up, then you have to uh, slide down accordingly. To wrap it up with Jason Zanamella, there aren't many guys who are identified this early as clear centers who get ranked as highly as he is. What stands out about him and, and what is his football background, as we mentioned, coming from, from Mozambique and it's kind of his journey to this point? 
Yeah, obviously, you know, the most unique in terms of his, his journey here. Uh, came to Clearwater Academy a couple of years ago, um, kind of a package deal with his big brother, Bruno Zandabella, who was even bigger. Uh, so he got to watch his brother sort of navigate the process as a big, raw offensive lineman. And, and he saw both sides of it, the plus and the minuses of, of being that. So I think from an earlier age, uh, Jason really wanted to focus on his technique um, so he wanted to play all five offensive line positions. He really wanted to just basically catch any work he could to try to figure out where he was going to be because it looks like he's not going to be as tall as big bros. You know, he's six three, six three and a half. So trying to figure out that right spot was, was always important to him. Um, so naturally he got to play center as a junior and it all just kind of clicked last year for him. Um, and then you, you go back to his original you know, athletic foundation and it's, it's soccer, it's rugby, it's, it's not football. So you, you get footwork, you get a little bit more of a motor than you would for, you know, somebody born in this country that was sort of built to be in the trenches where you're not sprinting with the skill position guys and you're not doing certain things with other guys. Over there for Jason, it was all, we're all together. We're all going to do these. So there, there was very much a, you play smaller than he is type of mentality. But naturally, when you get here and you do start to fill out and that becomes a good thing, you kind of put all that together and, and you become an offensive lineman who moves incredibly well, whether it's laterally or, or vertically. Um, I'm, I'm assuming his 40-yard dash is, is in the high fours, which is great for an offensive lineman. More importantly, his shuttle is in the low to mid fours, which is something that, you know, really – translates towards the next level and it's very modern you know that this this day and age is about getting out in space and isolating in these matchups so i just think it's been the perfect trajectory for jason to to build up to a center or even a guard position um at this stage because you're asking those players to move now more than you ever have had to and he's already you know checking that box in sharpie from a movement standpoint so every day that he's adding football acumen to it He's getting that much better, and, and the coaching staff there at, at CAI does a really good job. They run a, a super up-tempo, modern offense, and they send a bunch of kids to the Power Five. So they're running college-level stuff, so he's getting that crash course, not only as a blocker and as, as somebody following plays, but even as a play caller now at center. So I think mentally he's become just as impressive as he was physically when we're all sort of waiting for him to figure out you know which spot he's going to land at so that's that's another one where every time you watch him every time you learn a little bit more you're going to like him more so that get is going to be you know big all across the board but it's going to profile bigger i think every time we we expand and look at this class wow great stuff great stuff uh we'll wrap up real quick i know you, you got to go here soon but uh, mike matthews the five-star athlete wide receiver from georgia I know after his USC visit, you felt that they really made a move and uh, put themselves in perhaps legit contention with the likes of Tennessee and Clemson. What's the latest you're hearing on him and when the decision might come and, and what your pulse is? Yeah, those are, those are some great questions that we're still <laughs> efforting for the most part. But look, there's no doubt that USC did its job on the official visit. And, and Mike's another one that has been really open about expecting certain things on officials and getting a little bit more. And the USC trip certainly gave him more to think about to the point where, yeah, it looked like a Tennessee Clemson runaway battle head to head kind of deal. 
And now USC has thrown its name right into the thick of that. So um, I do think that is something to keep an eye on relative to his timeline. But I think there's still questions there. I think Mike is still trying to figure out, do I use that last weekend in July for a visit? Am I done with visits? I know Ohio State and Alabama are trying to get him to hold off to maybe take some visits later this summer or maybe even into the fall. But Mike wants to get this thing done. And I think that's for any school that's already hosted him officially like USC, that's the best news is that Mike wants to get this thing done uh, sooner rather than later. So I do get the sense it's, it's those three schools. It's USC, it's Tennessee and it's Clemson, all very different. Um, but all programs that that have this receiver history very recently that appeals to him you know from a developmental standpoint that is exactly what he's looking for that's why even as an in-state kid for the reigning champs at georgia you know there's 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 kind of this this sense in the south where it's like yeah georgia's the courtesy georgia is the hat on the table that is you know uh (laughs) thanks for recruiting me but i'm I'm not coming so that's just so rare but that that is very much in line with what mike is looking for so naturally you know you you look at lincoln riley and and that um that recent history and expanded history going back to ou and it's going to be something that that plays a factor in here down the wire. I, I do still get the sense that, you know, the school's closer to home or more familiar um, for him. So if he does wrap it up, I do think they're the favorite. But just in talking to him the last, you know, few weeks, there's a real sense of when do I need to finish this and, and do I have everything I need? I, I think there's still something to be said in his recruitment. So if, if he does set a preseason decision like he originally wanted to, I do think there's still room for these coaching staffs going back and forth just from a contact and, and classic recruiting standpoint to, to jockey up and down this list uh, of a top three, if this is indeed Mike's top three. But uh, he's worth it. I mean, he's one of the best football players in the country and certainly uh, the best available receiver in the country uh, as, as things stand right now. So that would be obviously the biggest fish for USC out, out, out east and down south, I should say, if they were to pull that one off. But I do think everybody has USC on notice with Mike and and elsewhere. It's not you're not sneaking up on anybody anymore. Phenomenal insight, John. We really appreciate it. And this was your first appearance on the Trojan Talk podcast, but it will definitely not be your last. And we thank you for your time. Sounds good, Ryan. Thanks for having me. Okay, and last but certainly not least, a guy will be talking to a bunch in the months and years to come Cole Patterson our new rivals recruiting analyst for Texas Oklahoma Louisiana a bunch of states down there but but most importantly for this conversation Texas Cole this is your first time on the program but of course we recorded multiple takes of this of this segment let's welcome you in fresh nonetheless thanks for joining the show how are you doing I'm doing well, man. Uh, I know we were just talking. You're, you've been all over the state of Texas, so the better question is how you, you are doing. <laughs> Tired, but uh, I always love my scenic tours of, of East Texas and, and Central Texas and all parts that most people will never see in their life, so it's been good. <laughs> no doubt. No doubt. There was a lot happening the end of June for USC in Texas. As mentioned at the top of the show, the Trojans won two big recruiting battles for four-star offensive lineman Makai Sena from Arlington, Texas and four-star cornerback Braylon Conley from Humble, Texas. They were in it to the end with four-star receiver Draylon Miller from Silsby, Texas, before he chose Texas A&M. And soon thereafter, four-star linebacker Ty Anthony Smith followed to the Aggies and was 
a big loss for the Trojans. They had, they had really honed in on three inside linebacker targets in this cycle, and two of those three, Jordan Lockhart and Ty Anthony Smith, both end up at Texas A&M. And the aforementioned Kingston Viliamu Asa is the re- remaining one. I think they're going to have to eventually reset their board there and take a fresh look at who's out there and, and try and find some help at that spot in this class. But that can be a topic for another day. Cole, while we have you, I want to get your take on the two commits at the end of the month, Makai Sina and Braylon Conley. Kind of give us your scouting report and, and how you saw those recruitments play out. I thought A&M and Texas are the two kind of out in front. You know, he just he's always been high in A&M in his recruitment. A&M recruits Arlington Martin really well. Uh, just from background, that's where Miles Garrett is from. And they seem to do a really good job recruiting that school and that and that area, that Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex, but especially in Arlington. Um, he's fresh off his Texas official visit. They, when you, Kyle Flood gets you down on campus, their offensive line coach, it's hard to ter- turn him down. Um, so for USC to beat those two programs out says a lot. You know, obviously he enjoyed his visit out to LA. He he, he went to USC just before he went to Texas. Um, he told me uh, he we extension messages. He told me he really enjoyed it. He got to know some of the team really well. Uh, but yeah, it was always tough to pull a guy, kid from Texas to LA. But we get Riley Sewing man. This is the latest evidence of that. And I love Sena. Uh, I've had a chance to see him play. Really tough. Offensive iron. If you like tough offensive iron, turn on his film. He's finishing blocks. He's a you know, typical road grader. He uh, once he gets his hands on you, you're probably going down to the turf. And I just love that about him. Uh, I think he'll fit in really well in that scheme. And, and you see his future at one of the tackle spots. Yeah, I think he has some you know flexibility to move inside a guard. Um, he doesn't have a ton of pass protection tape. You know, they're in a run-heavy offense, so it'll be interesting to see where they ultimately place him. But I think he'd definitely be a right tackle with some versatility sliding the guard. You know, you talk about Lincoln Riley pulling guys out of Texas. Josh Henson, their uh, O-line coach, last offensive coordinator, uh, deserves a ton of credit for what he's done in a year and a half. The count now is 14 offensive linemen he's brought in in a year and a half. That include the five signees last year, uh, the Juco addition, at the end of the 22 cycle, and then uh, the four commits so far and four transfers. And the, the three this year, plus Bobby Haskins, who started last year at left tackle, is now gone. But that is a massive influx of talent. And Henson, of course, came from Texas A&M, where he uh, raked in the talent from Texas offensive line prospects. And the question was, could he carry it over and get those guys to California? I don't know how often it's going to happen, but this is a big win for him. No doubt, and I think it just says a lot about USC's brand. Um, obviously, Lincoln Riley is known for the high-flying offenses, maybe uh, more finesse and all those kind of things, but he wanted to install some, still some physicality, some aggressiveness in the trenches, and he's done that, as you mentioned. And I think the move to the Big Ten has some recruits' uh, attention as well. Well, very good. And then Braylon Conley, the four-star cornerback, as mentioned, from the Houston area, from Humble, Texas. I got to go see him on my Texas tour as well. Nice kid. Essentially told me that he made this decision and, and committed to the staff after his official visit back in May and just kind of held on to it until his announcement date because they had a big commitment party already booked and reserved and planned. And But there was no more deliberation, really. He knew after that official visit in May, he canceled the rest of his planned official visits so talk about nailing the presentation 
for the USC coaches there with, with Braylon Conley. What do you like about him? Another guy that's physical, man. He can't his tape. It's a physical corner hook. He likes to get his hands on receivers. Not overly grubby per se, but, you know, he just wants to, you know, press them, get his hands on them, make it difficult for them to create separation. He gets his head in a run game. He's not afraid to get physical there. Um, and he's always running football. And he's deflecting passes. He shows off some good ball skills, plays some receiver as well. At a really big-time program in Houston, and in the Houston area, I should say, at Tascacita, always competing for state championships and deep in the playoffs, things of that nature. So I think they're getting a blue-collar DB coming from a big program. And I think fits what they want to do defensively. And then lastly, before we let you go, I want to talk about Taylor Tatum, the four-star running back from Longview, Texas, way up in northeast Texas. I made the trek out there during my my tour of the Lone Star State. I talked to Taylor Tatum after one of his uh, high school team's workouts, and I thought it was a really interesting interview that we posted on com, where he really presented himself as being truly conflicted on this decision. And there was a lot of buzz coming off his Oklahoma official visit that the Sooners had, had surged ahead and were the clear favorites. And in talking to him, I didn't get the sense that it was it was quite like that. I think Oklahoma may be the favorite because of geography and perhaps the baseball element that they really emphasize in their recruitment to him He's, as a, as a two-sport athlete. USC did as well, but Oklahoma really, I think, uh, prioritized their baseball presentation to Taylor but as much as anything, I think geography was the factor that I would worry about most with USC. I think he liked Los Angeles a lot. But he mentioned the most important factor to him is going somewhere where he feels at home, where he doesn't feel out of place or not going to be homesick. And he came straight out and said that Norman, Oklahoma, reminds him very much of his hometown of Longview. And that would be the factor that I would worry about from a USC perspective. That said... He seemed truly conflicted and basically told me that he didn't know if he was going to have a decision before the end of the summer. He said, I, I definitely want to. I, I don't want to drag this out. I want it to be over with before my season, but I just don't know yet if I'm going to be ready to make that call. He, he, does, he wants to make sure he's 100% sure. He wants to make sure he doesn't have second thoughts down the road. He doesn't want to decommit or be in the transfer portal in two years. So I could see this taking him a, a while longer to make that call. But Cole, what is your read on on Taylor Tatum and and where things stand in his recruitment? It seems like USC kind of had that edge, and then, like you said, the tide has seemingly turned to Oklahoma. Um, you know, Oklahoma's done a great job always recruiting the East Texas area. He's out of Longview, and they, you know, have always had success in that region. Trent Williams is from Longview, and it's just that uh, area is seemingly high on Oklahoma. So there's a lot of influence out there, and then he's took that visit. Uh, he knows DeMarco Murray really well. Um, he's obviously been a top target for the Oklahoma program. But, yeah, I think the main thing that's really, at least from what I've been able to gather, the main thing that's really swinging him or swinging him Oklahoma's favor is Skip Johnson, the baseball coach, kind of, you know, meeting with him. You know, that he's had experience. Uh, you know, Lincoln Riley is a football coach at Oklahoma, obviously, with Kyler Murray. But Skip Johnson was the baseball coach uh, during that era. And Kyler Murray, obviously, was able to play and succeed in both sports. And just knowing that he would be able to go in and kind of follow the same path, you know, playing a football program and playing for Skip Johnson, the baseball coach up there. Um, he's, he's already had success doing that. I think I resonated with him. Um, and then the football side of things, DeMarco Murray, you know, he's been there and done that. He's exceeded it. 
at Oklahoma. He's played in the NFL. That's another thing that has his attention. It's closer to home, which I think is worth noting. You know, um, USC is has a lot to a lot of things that appeal to these Texas recruits. But you know, at the end of the day, if you're closer to home, I think that's a selling point that you know schools in this region have to offer that USC just simply can't. So that's another thing that you have to consider. Um, I don't know if. USC's completely out of it. I don't, I don't know if he's officially shut everything down, but I did flip my future, or I did put in a future cast in for Oklahoma to, to land him. It doesn't seem like he's going to drag it out too long. Um, but yeah, ultimately, I think that the baseball selling point really, really nailed him down to Oklahoma if, if, that, if he does announce pretty soon. Great intel all around. Cole Patterson, we really appreciate it. And like we said, we'll have plenty of opportunity in the future to do this again. Yeah, awesome. Thanks for having me on, man. Can't wait to be back. Okay, as promised, familiar voice, although it has been a while since we've had the dulcet tones of Max Brown on the podcast. Max, how's it going? What's up, Ryan? It's going well. It's good seeing you earlier this week, and it's like uh, it was an eventful, what, Drew? This t- it was an eventful time in the USC world this time last year with the conference announcement, and then now we get uh, some NIL announcements and some facility announcements, so it'll be fun to dive in. Yeah, well, it's never really slowed down since looking around these gotten here, which is a good thing for those of us in the media realm. Yeah, it was good to see you in in the real world yeah, <laughs> for, for a change. Yeah, but I mean, fall camp is not that far away, so we'll be getting Max back on for more football-oriented talk. But I wanted to have him on today to talk about the big NIL event that we were both at, the QBU event put on by House of Victory. And then the football facilities announcement and get a, a former player's perspective on uh, what that means for the program, how USC's facilities have compared to others and how far behind they've been, et cetera, et cetera. But let's work backwards and start in Newport Beach, a swanky, swanky event that I was somehow led into. Uh, <laughs> House of Victories. QBU of the, the event would not have been the same without you. Okay. So we, we had to have Ryan Young there. <laughs> I appreciate that, and I really enjoyed it. it. It went about an hour longer than expected. It was about a four-hour event. It had a dozen or so former and current quarterbacks, yourself included, from Paul McDonald all the way to Malachi Nelson. Rodney Pete was the MC. Mark Sanchez was auditioning for a role on a, on a game show. <laughs> Well, good. Uh, he, he was he was hilarious. I I'd never seen Sanchez in that setting. I've seen him do some you know football analysis stuff, but he was really smooth and natural and kind of a a moderator role, uh, leading one of the panels of the night. But uh, yeah, lots of big names: Carson Palmer, Matt Barkley, Cody Kessler, on and on and on. Pretty cool event. Max, how did you get reeled into that? Yeah, so for those that are not up to speed, I think all, all of our listeners here are, are aware of House of Victory, the new NIL collective um, announced a couple months back. Uh, and I got connected, so their lead uh, is Spencer Harris, who my understanding is, used to work through with, with Boulevard and more uh, of an in-house role or in-house type of role with USC Athletics. And then um, has now pivoted to this House of Victory opportunity. And I preface it that way because I think it's important for – USC fans to realize that this collective is not just this outside okay it is technically an outside third party run organization but it has a lot of pieces that were previously part of the inner workings of the athletic department which I think gives it a a sense of of, of credibility which is 
important, not from a just comfort of donations from donors standpoint, but also just the long-term viability of the group. So I got connected through Spencer. I was part of their first event out in Redondo uh, last month. I moderated that. It was um, a bunch of athletes there. We had Boogie Ellis, Kalen Bullock, Shane Lee. Um, it was a great turnout. It wasn't, like you said, to the to the scale of the recent Newport Beach, Beach event, but I, I think it's it's super exciting what House of Victory is up to. And I think one thing that the average USC football fan I don't think fully realizes is how behind USC truly was on the NIL space relative to the other blue blood programs. I think we we, we got in this uh, in this mold of being like oh. We got Jordan Addison, so NIL must be good. And we get Bear Alexander, so NIL must be must be good. My read from conversations that I have with people on the inside is it, it was not. It's not as uh, comforted foot, comforted footing right now in that space. And, and House of Victory is is uh, is certainly allowing that to be uh, more stabilized. I guess I, I guess I should say. And there's some heavy hitters. I mean, you're having Will Smith, not the actor Will Smith, but the. Uh, the real estate lead, Will Smith, who's a big USC donor behind the scenes. He's big in the commercial real estate industry that I'm a part of. He's leading up this, uh, he's part of one of, I think it's five leaders uh, in the House of Victory. He's one of the leaders. Jacob Ullman, who's a big decision maker at Fox, is leading it up, um, along with Kevin Shannon, who's one of the biggest commercial real estate brokers in the country, um, big USC donor. There's just some big people that are leading the charge here. And it's not just a, a savvy businessman trying to make a buck. It's people that have USC's best interests. So it seems like this is really the group that has the most traction in the NIL space moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. Spencer Harris, you mentioned, was USC's recruiting director for, for three plus years, then segue into the running Boulevard, which was USC's first attempt at at uh, taking control of the NIL space. And that was... an ostensibly an in-house operation. Now, NCAA rules or what have you, whatever's governing these things these days, who knows? Uh, you can't you can't be an officially an in-house operation with NIL, so it has to be separate by definition. But this is, House of Victory is most definitely the collective that is backed by USC that is kind of the preferred collective of the, the few that have popped up drive that point home was the fact that, you know, at the end of the event, Lincoln Riley, Andy Enfield, Lindsey Gottlieb, and beach volleyball coach Dane Blanton were all there to make their pitch to the donors and, and talk about the importance of NIL. So uh, House of Victory is definitely kind of the the lead operation on that front. And it's going to be really interesting to see if they can truly galvanize the the USC fan base, the boosters, the, the, the heavy hitter donors, and get it to where they desire it to be. And I think the number that was tossed around, if I'm wrong, correct me, is, is $15 million a year is kind of the goal for what they think they need to run a nationally competitive NIL operation. That's correct. Yeah, he said 15 to 20, and that number was just from internal discussions with the connections that uh, the House of Victory lead had with some of the SEC programs. And I, I thought his $15 million, some people might hear that and say, oh, that's a ton of money. But when you put it in the grand scheme of, I think the number he threw out there was USC as a university raises $700 million. So in the grand scheme of that number, if for a lot of us, USC sports is 
the most important agenda with that. So in the grant, it's kind of how you look at it in terms of how um, significant that number is. But that's where it needs to be at to compete not only um, nationally, but I think just, you know, week in and week out as, as, as USC moves into the Big Ten. And I think one point that's worth highlighting, because I think it goes overlooked in the NIL world, is the importance of having, I mean, just the inherent definition of a collective means, you know, groups coming together. And so far up to this point, USC has had different collective bodies out there looming. And I, I've seen some of my former teammates, you know, they advocate for one group, and then there's another group that pops up, and then so-and-so is leading this group. And that becomes really inefficient for Lincoln Riley. And my understanding is quite um, cloudy in terms of, hey, if I'm going to approach Bear Alexander in the transfer portal, if I'm Lincoln Riley, I need to know exactly what I have at my disposal from a resource perspective. And when there's different groups and, you know, different monies and different areas for donors to, to donate money, that becomes unclear. And so I think it's really important um, that SC does have one group, which might come at the detriment of these other initiatives that are out there looming. But I do think having a one a one body where you can, can donate to just – makes things efficient, makes things cleaner, and I think will drive more donations um, as a result. No, I totally agree, and I've always thought that it, it just makes sense that eventually they have to consolidate uh, because why would you want to have different pools of money and try and keep it all all straight and, and have a hard time knowing exactly what you got, where, where, where it's coming from. And, and again, I, th- I think everyone has started to understand the basic parameters of NIL. You know, on the recruiting visit, Lincoln Riley cannot tell an athlete we can give you or we will give you X amount to come here. Whether that happens around the country or not, I think we all assume it does. But by the letter of the law, r- the rules, that cannot be done. What he can say is last year, all of our offensive linemen made X amount of dollars and give kind of a reference point for what the NIL operation is doing. But certainly, he's in communication with these collectives, and I'm sure they're they're going by the book and doing how they have to do it. But they have an understanding for for what he wants, what he needs, and it just makes more sense and feasibility if it's if it's one group that is kind of coordinating all that. So we'll see what happens down the road. But I think House of Victory is definitely going to be the one that swallows up the others if that's what happens. And to give you a, a sense for how these events operate, they've already announced their, their next one, a big man luncheon, where tables are going for $10,000 a table. So uh, money comes in that way, and then once they're in, uh, there's you know a further sales pitch about the need to donate and an opportunity to, to donate. So there's money coming in at the door. There's uh, ideally, in, for the collective, money coming in after the fact through donations. And then the players who appear at these events, like we had Malachi Nelson and Miller Moss and uh, Caleb Williams, obviously, uh, all at the QBU event, they all get paid to go to these things. So it, it, it's, a, it's a vehicle to pay NIL money to the athletes as well as raising NIL money for the general fund. Because technically, you can't just give the money to the athletes for nothing. It has to be tied to something. It has to be linked to some to some appearance or some representation of their name, image, and likeness by having them come to these events where tables are going for thousands and thousands of dollars. Uh, that appearance is then the reason for them to get money and get paid. So it's 
kind of a, a circular system, but that's how it works as best as I understand it. And why we'll keep seeing these events pop up. And it's, it's a great opportunity for the fans who can afford to go because you, you do get to interact with both current and former uh, Trojans and get closer to the program than was ever possible before. Yeah, I think it's a good point. And I, the last little comment I would add, too, is there's the events, um, which obviously, like you said, you have to have the fortune of being able to, to, to afford a table or a ticket there. They made reference to long-term from a more sustainable business model perspective, from an NIL lens, having a, you know, it, it would make sense to activate the, you know, I'll call it average USC football fan that might not be able to purchase a $10,000 table, but how would they do that? They've mentioned that they're doing a behind the scenes kind of docu-series filming content um, that, you know, of practices of, of, of what I presume meetings and kind of the day, day-to-day life. When I heard them say that, it reminded me of the Netflix full swing documentary that we've seen um, on the PGA Tour, and we've seen Tennis's version of that. We've seen F1's version of that on Netflix. And then House of Victory having that be something that you can subscribe to and access probably in the more hundreds of dollars range rather than thousands of dollars range, and then activate thousands of USC fans at that $100 of price point and then build that more sustainably long-term and have that be a reoccurring series, which I thought that was brilliant and makes a lot of sense rather than just banking on a a couple or a few dozen donors to back all $15 million, and you never know know, how that shakes out over the long term. Yeah, I I think they've got to galvanize as many people as possible at all levels, and I I have no direct sense for, for what they've raised so far or if they're on track to the goal. What I'll just say, though, is that the event was really well uh, organized, put put on. It was very entertaining. Those who went definitely got what they were looking for, I'm sure. I was wrapped for all four hours, really enjoyed it. So it, I, I do think that the people running it are doing a really polished job with, with the presentation and, and putting it together. And that in itself should be probably encouraging for those who have had doubts about USC's NIL endeavors or who were discouraged by the boulevard uh, situation. Uh, it does seem to be going in the right direction at this point. I agree. I think it's well said. Let's go into the event and kind of what it was. There was a happy hour outside mingling session for an hour or so. People were getting pictures with Caleb Williams uh, by the House of Victory backdrop. And then uh, moved inside to a ballroom where there was 16 or 18 tables uh, I know the media were at table 16, so that might, might have been the last number. I don't know. Quarterbacks who were in attendance were, were kind of spread out one at each table, and I was next to the table with Miller Moss. and Max, what table were you at, and what was the experience you had? Yeah, what table was I at? I think I was at six or so, um, but it was great. Yeah, like you said, cocktail were there, and they did a good job. They had three different panels, all focused on a different kind of lens of, 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 of USC football. The first panel was... Caleb Williams and Carson Palmer interviewed by Mark Sanchez and uh, Mark did a great job. Cool seeing him in that like O's role, but then it was cool because they, rather than it just being the standard questions, I think you, you hear Carson answer a lot. It was more so more uh, lighthearted in comparing his era versus uh, Caleb's era from a pop culture perspective, from just how the offenses perspective. And it was just from the first USC Heisman quarterback to the most recent, I thought that positioning was cool. And then the second panel 
was current USC quarterbacks and just getting an inside look into the current times at USC, which was cool. That was the first time I'd seen uh, Malachi Nelson um, speak in an extended manner and uh, able to meet him, which was great. And uh, I thought Miller Moss showcased himself well, which sometimes he can uh, be forgotten about a little bit with these conversations. But it, Caleb went out of his way to love up Miller Moss he and did. give him props for what he's been over the past year, which... I don't know what the Vegas line is for who's going to be the starting quarterback next year, but that could be a little a little value bet if you're uh, if you're looking for one. But I won't I won't I won't I won't get ahead of myself there. Uh, and then the third panel, which uh, this was cool for me because it was more my my era, so to speak, was Matt Barkley and Cody Kessler. Um, obviously, I backed up Cody there for three years, and I was recruited off the back of of Barkley's success. So it was it was cool to get that lens of you know Barkley. Man, he's. He's carved himself out a really nice career um, when it's all said and done, going into his 11th or 12th year, whatever they said. And then Cody Kreisler had a nice nice little run in the NFL there. So it's cool to just get that lens of USC quarterback as well. So that was great. Uh, Paul McDonald emceed the last panel there. And I just thought it was really well run. Just getting all of those quarterbacks in one setting with all the busy schedules and all the different agendas, I think not only speaks to the power that House of Victory has, but just the importance of the NIL landscape that I think all the quarterbacks realize they need to uh, they need to help be a part of. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. Where I don't know if the other collectives have the pull to get that kind of guest list to come out. Kind of underscores what we were saying earlier. And I guess one one little last point there. I forgot about the last panel, which to me actually was the most important one. Uh, Joel Clout was there, and he was paneling like you referenced uh, Ryan, the four head coaches. So yep. for. Um, Sam Volleyball, Andy Enfield with men's basketball, Lincoln Riley, and then the women's basketball coach, Lindsey Gottlieb. And I thought my biggest takeaway from there, that was actually the best conversation of the night because that was as candid as I have seen head coaches ever be with boosters. I've been around. I had four head coaches at SC. I've seen how head coaches handle boosters. And a lot of the times we've seen with Clay Helton, it was a lot of you know, smiling, shaking babies. The sun is always shining. That type of energy. Shaking hands and kissing babies, not shaking babies. Oh, see you. Hey, <laughs> who knows? Who knows? With Clay. Sorry. Yeah, good call. <laughs> no, <laughs> shaking babies. That is not how you get nil donations. <laughs> um, <laughs> my bad there. But no, I say that in the lens of they were very honest in that. Hey, this needs to get elevated, or we will not be able to compete. Very black and white, which. Again, I just I had not seen head coaches be that um, transparent with uh, with donors, and I think it was refreshing to hear. And it's not lost upon them that uh, it's a team effort. It's not just a, oh, we gotta we gotta do this donor event because it's on my schedule and it's my obligation as a head coach. It's no, this donor event is now a core pillar of what my responsibilities need to be as a uh, as a head coach at a at a at a university. Yeah, and that's where I wanted to get to last. Media-wise, we were allowed to record, video, everything until the coaches' seminar at the end, which was off the record, because it, it was, like you said, very candid. And what struck me, it was it was very clearly that those coaches wanted to be there to make make their presentation, not, not that, okay, I have to do this, like you said. It definitely wasn't a chore. It was we we need this NIL operation to back us. And I have a very clear and direct message that I want to convey to people in this room. And the Enfield especially was, was really commanding 
Um, I don't know if I've ever, ever seen him speak in that kind of way, but he was really direct and Lincoln was very direct. And then the part that maybe resonate, should have resonated with people in the room was the story that Lindsay Gottlieb told about one of her players and just how much NIL had, had impacted her. Told a really compelling story of one of her players and just how much NIL has transformed her just in her short, short time at USC. And I think that maybe humanized the whole NIL thing for the people in the room. But very impressive presentation. Uh, I'll keep going to those events whenever I'm invited and, and keep sharing with our audience some of the highlights. But it definitely was more than I expected and impressed me. And I do want to move us on. Pretty much since Lincoln Riley was hired, there have been hints and uh, allusions to uh, facility upgrades to come. I've certainly taken every opportunity to try and press them on that over the last year and a half and never got any details. But it became clear what was in the works when USC announced plans for a new three-story football performance center that will be right at the end of the reconfigured practice fields and will include, I'm going to quote directly from the press release here, uh, three levels dedicated to team operations as well as a rooftop hospitality deck and player lounge a new locker room, multiple player lounges, a recovery hub, nutritional support, sports sciences services, a weight room, a training room, an equipment room, a team auditorium, position meeting rooms, recruiting areas, staff offices, and flexible space for future growth. So basically, all of USC football operations will kind of move into this new facility that will be right connected to the practice field. If anyone's seen the USC practice fields before, there's one that goes vertically, and when it goes horizontal, they're going to be both horizontal. I guess it depends on how you're, how you're looking at it. But uh, they're going to kind of rearrange the practice fields, have two full-length practice fields. And that's going to require a reconfiguration of the baseball stadium because they're going to be encroaching on uh, the area that part of the stadium baseball stadium is on now. So that will impact the baseball program. And we'll get into that more with Andy Stankiewicz in the next segment. But Max, from a, a football standpoint, what was your general takeaway when you saw the announcement last week about this uh, this new endeavor? My first takeaway was it made me feel old because uh, I feel like I'm uniquely positioned to kind of talk on this subject because I was recruited in 2011-2012, really 2012, to USC. The McKay Center was not up and running at that time. I got my offer in... Um, in the spring of 20, uh, 2012, yes, 2011, 2012, in Heritage Hall. And so that's, 10, that's almost 10 years ago. It's not that long ago in the grand scheme of getting a new football facility. And so I think my first reaction is if the, football, if the McKay Center that was opened in 2012 was so groundbreaking at the time, I mean, look at how crazy the, the dynamics have shifted and how quickly they've shifted in 10 years for what the, the standard is for a football facility. Like the fact that we're only 10 years later talking about needing an entire new football facility, it shows you, you know, where this arms race has gone. And I think it also shows you, if we're being truth tellers, the lack of foresight from the USC Athletic Department 10, 15 years ago when the McKay Center got up and running. Um, to already need an entire new op- an entire new facility, I think speaks to you know maybe not having the for- not having the foresight that additional staff was going to be needed, that additional investment was going to be needed from more of the the support roles, um, just in football in general, and 
maybe a lack of commitment from USC as a whole into, you know, where this football trajectory was heading. I mean, we're talking about, about now at this facility, moving the baseball field entirely closer to Vermont to create more land to build the, the practice field. Like, that's why it didn't happen because that's why it didn't happen a year, a decade ago, because the prospects of moving, literally moving the baseball field further west to create more land was just preposterous. Like, oh, that's ridiculous. I'm sure a lot of people were saying, oh, these athletes, they don't need that much. Well, you fast forward uh, 10 years from now or 10 years later, and, and, and here we are. So I think it's great for the athletes. I think it's needed for sure. Um, and just as a reminder for, for listeners, like most schools don't have to deal with this because in Tucson, Arizona or Tuscaloosa, Alabama, there's just an open patch of land that you can go expand on. L.A., it's a different ball game. My understanding as to why USC does not have a softball team is strictly just a land component. Yes, there's a Title IX component, but it's we don't have the land to build a softball field. So so much of this is so much of this is a game of Tetris, call it, and tr- and trying to find where you can carve this out. The solution was yeah, moving the baseball field further west. Uh, that was that was you know land that was not optimized. You're able to get a full length football field. Ryan, you 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 mentioned it. Currently, there's one full-length grass field and then a call it smaller side turf area and then a i believe it's a 60 yard 60 or 70 yard um side side uh, side turf field currently on usc which to the standards of other schools around the country most schools i see have two full-length practice fields and then a significant portion have a indoor facility as well so obviously this gets us closer to to that dynamic and I think it's awesome for the athletes, and I think it just speaks to, you know, with the head of the Big Ten, more money coming in. One thing I did, I noticed that was not on this announcement was a timeline and a budget, which will be interesting to yeah. see how that comes out. But uh, yeah, it's a it's a it's a tale of the new times and kind of this second wave of an arms race in college athletics. Yeah, I'll be very curious to see if we ever get a, a total budget number on, on this project or exactly. Uh... Who who's behind the funding of it? I don't know if that's going to come out, but you know, I'm sure, like you said, I'm sure the McKay Center was was very uh, uh, groundbreaking at the time, even though it wasn't that long ago. But these standalone football complexes now are presentation devices. They're they're let's bring recruits in and show them this great facility that overlooks the field. Let's bring boosters in to watch practice from this this rooftop lounge overlooking the practice field. They're they're used for a lot more things than just the utility of um, weight room and meeting room and locker room. Those are the components that, are, that probably separate this from what USC currently has. And it's 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 a, vi- a visual statement. You know, people. They see it. They see that this is the home of USC football, whereas right now everything is kind of underground and in, in, in McKay, and, and you don't really, you don't really see. Okay, this is this is USC football's uh, operational space. So I think the, the visual element is going to be key as well. Max, when you were here as a player, did you feel that things were far behind? Did you feel that things were lacking? That you, you had friends at other schools that had something that you didn't have that was very apparent? Not at all. Yeah, again, I was there 13 to 16, and at the time, in 2013, in 2012, 13, 14, even 15, um, 
the McKay Center was viewed as state of the art, a state of the art facility for athletics. And then again, and then as as we've talked about, there was another wave of an arms race as NIL and, I, and I, like Clemson. I remember the the days when Clemson announced their facility with the slide and all that. And I was like, <laughs> all right, this is going to this is going to a whole new level. But like I remember talking with guys and uh, I mentioned this. I was chatting with uh, Matt or yeah Matt Khalil. Um, at one of the events, like I was recruited on the back of seeing videos of Heritage Hall. Like my first walkthrough was Heritage Hall where it was like musty and kind of like gross. And it had a little bit of a charm to it because it was it was a football locker room. It felt like an old school football locker room, that that type of feel where it wasn't it wasn't sexy. There wasn't a ton of flash. Then going into, into the McKay Center, I was like, this is amazing. And so I, I can't stress enough how quickly that perspective and gauge for what's normal has uh has, has shifted there um but it's time and i think it yeah it speaks to the commitment that uh is just going to have to be needed to compete with all these uh, recruits that are looking at georgia's and alabama's and the schools uh schools out east i also wouldn't be surprised at all if one component of this from looking around these perspective was to not have to walk up a tunnel across an actively busy street in, in front of an area where all the media gather and stand before practice just to get yep. into, the, into the practice field. We know that, especially in season, he really likes to close the curtains, so to speak, and, and keep things as behind the scenes as possible. And being able to walk straight out of your facility onto the practice field, which is all behind the fence, I think is probably more his style than the current setup. So I'm sure that was a component to this as well. Without a doubt. And, and one last little point, too, is in that press release, a line that stuck out to me was, flexible space for future growth which i think is at the core of 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 a lot of this motivation is mckay center was built for lane kiffin's staff currently on hand with maybe a couple extra offices but you quickly outgrew that which again speaks to the lack of foresight with seeing where the support staff bought like the the quantity of sport support staff members was heading but this i think speaks to Hey, we know this, and if we talk again in 10 years, college football might be in a, a totally different landscape. Maybe the NIL component at that time is in-house, and you need a whole other wing of the building for your NIL department. Like, there's a world where that exists, and so I think that line of flexible space for future growth was not lost upon me because we could sit, we could be sitting here 10 years from now where it's an entirely different landscape again. Yeah, absolutely. And but for all the functionality, everything comes back to recruiting ultimately. I do hear from recruits when we talk to them about their visits to USC that every once in a while someone will say, "Well, yeah, you know, you know the facilities aren't uh, as nice as other places, but I like this and this and this or the facilities seem a little old, but this and this and this." So, it, it matters, I guess, it matters to recruits. I don't know how much it matters to you when you were evaluating all your options, but it matters to recruits now and you have to show well. You have to show well, and it, de- it definitely has a, a flash, and it matters just from a sense of this is where you're going to work every day, every day, and, uh, and, a, and a, you know a certain appeal to it. But I just, again, this is going to make me feel old, but I, I can't help but kind of like chuckle when I hear you say uh, athletes like, "Oh, this is old, this is old," because I was literally <laughs> recruited off the back of being like this being a state of the art facility, and it felt like that. It did. It felt like a great place to go, but then it just. I guess that's life, and that's the different iterations. But uh, it's just funny, funny hearing that, and I'm sure all my teammates would agree with me. Good stuff. Well, 
quick conversation today. Just want to hit on those two matters with Max. But we'll, again, as we get closer to the season and fall camp, we'll come back on and talk football matters as we always do. Max, great to have you back on the show. It was uh, hopefully a fun, fun pod and hopefully uh, an action-packed fall as well. Thanks for having me on, Ryan. Definitely. All right, next on to the podcast, as promised, USC baseball coach Andy Stankiewicz, who just finished up his very successful first season with the Trojans, 34 wins. Andy, thanks for joining us. Brian, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I want to cover a lot with you, but let's turn it back to this past season. Like I said, 34 wins. I think most people would say you exceeded expectations in year one. I know when we talked a few weeks ago, you didn't want to necessarily put it in that in that frame because you, you you have high standards for every year. But now that it's over, how do you put year one in perspective? Well, I think that it was uh, in terms of laying groundwork, right? Kind of laying the foundation, and that was part of what we wanted to do as much as anything. Uh, year one was to put the framework together and the foundation of how we wanted to move um, the program moving forward. And so, I think we were successful in that. Um, that, that aspect, I think we're successful on the field, obviously as well. I, I feel like we're in a good position to continue to playing into a uh, postseason, but you know, whatever reason, we're not chosen. But um, I, again, more importantly, was the job that, that our guys did, the staff did this year to just kind of put put us in a good spot moving forward, and that was that was the, the, the main focus as we started last August. You mentioned it there, and I, and I hate to bring it up because I'm sure you've. Uh, move past it now, but the, the snub from the NCAA regionals going into the, the selection day, I think most most outlets who project such things had USC in that field, and uh, t- to not get included, what was your takeaway? Was there anything that you took from that that can be applied to future schedules, or, or what what you need to do to present to that committee? What, what was the the main conclusion you drew from that? Well, I think that you you have to um, you have to take it out of the committee's hands. I think that's what we learned. We have to put ourselves in the position as we move forward to where um, they have no no choice um, but to put us in. And so, um, what I mean by that is, is is winning more games in conference, doing going further in the conference tournament. Um, um, I, I'm not. I, I thought our schedule was fine. That, that wasn't the issue. Um, um, you know, we got swept at, at Oregon State. We got swept at Washington. That that that's the issue. I mean, so um, you can't you can't let that happen. We didn't we didn't play well enough on the road. Um, um, in terms of RPI, right, to put us in a, in a number of a spot to where they thought we qualified for the tournament. So, um, um, so I think that's that's it. I mean, I think getting our young men and staff and everybody realized like every game matters. Every time you get on the road and play a three game series, you know, you, you got you got it. You can't get swept. You can't put yourself in a position to where um, a committee looks at looks at RPI and says, ah, you know, they didn't they didn't play well on the road. So, um, so at the end of the day, man, I, that's that's what the lesson I got out of this. How did you handle that situation with the players in the moment? I'm sure there was shock, obviously disappointment. What what was that moment like as the players took in the reality of of that uh, uh, reveal? And and what was your message to them in, in that moment? Uh, just hey man, message is this: you don't always get what you think you deserve in life. This is how life works, man. Um, yeah. And so, um, and if you want something, you gotta go take it. And we didn't, we we wanted it, but we didn't do enough to take it. So, um, I say hey man, it's it's 
it's called real life. And you can I told him walk out of this room. We were all in the clubhouse together watching that show. I said, just walk out of this room and be heads up, chest out, and be proud of what you accomplished this year. And don't feel sorry for yourselves. But nobody, nobody feels sorry for you, man. Um, nobody does. So dude, I don't want to hear about it, talk about it. It is what it is. It's done. Go play a great summer ball. Go represent yourselves and families in this university well this summer. Um, we'll come back next August, ready to work. And he's told me there's going to be more bodies here this fall. It's going to be a lot more competitive inside the program when you're here in August. And so if you want to be a part of this, and, and then great. If you don't, then go somewhere else. That's what I told him. Perfect, perfect. And that's where I want to take it next is, is looking forward. Uh, this is obviously the time of year when players are making decisions on their futures, those that uh, have decisions to make. Do you have a sense for – maybe some foundational pieces that you, you definitely do have to build around for next year that you can kind of lock into place? Well, I think that, I mean, Auvergne, um, you know, is is back. Um, um, I, I don't think he'll jump on the portal. I don't think that's what he wants to do. So I think he's understands he's in a good spot here at USC. So, I mean, he's young. He's up cover. He's here at this trials. He's in here trying to make this team. Um, we got Galloway who came, came on on nice at the end of the year for us but on the plate and, you know, look at uh, um, Hedges right great job Ethan did at first base and maybe get over some third base this next year and then you know, Grizzolonic had a nice year he's a, he's a redshirt freshman he had a nice year um, Ryan Jackson's back um, Carson Wells is back um, there's some nice pieces there right Connor Clift is back as a as an older catcher so some nice pieces there. Now we, we recruited some of the guys to come in and, and push and try to take take some jobs away from these guys, and that's how that's how you want it. You want to be competitive. And so, uh, but I do like those pieces coming back. And uh, um, board we believe will we'll come back. The draft will influence that possibly as well. And um, Aoki um, came back and um, Hammond and Hammond, you know, he's. He was kind of up and down a little bit this year, so we got to get him back and kind of get him back to full speed where, where he can um, give us some good innings. And so, um, yeah, we like we like some of the pieces that are, that are coming back, but now, now it's just trying to find from the guys that we recruited that are already coming, and then if there's portal portal pieces that we need to take a look at. Very solid core, though, just based on production you got of those guys this year. Recruiting-wise, what, what is your preferred balance between transfer portal and high school guys? What best serves your program? Well, I think, you know, I, I, I like, I mean, I, at the end of the day, I, I believe in player development. I believe in, so I like young freshmen coming in and developing. But the reality, too, is you you have to piece the puzzle. Sometimes you have to bring in a JC transfer guy to, to, to fill a hole. Um, and the portal is, is that piece as well. Right, and so just trying and older players, you know, not always, but typically older players are are a little bit more seasoned, more experienced than the younger ones. They've kind of been around. They played college baseball for a while, and they've gone and played summer ball, and um, they've traveled, and they say just they get the routine of it. Sometimes some younger guys, it takes them a while to kind of figure it out, and so um, you know, sometimes it's it's nice to have that that older piece there, ready to step in and, and kind of hold the fort down until the young guy's ready to kind of turn the corner. And so you guys just try to balance all those pieces out as well. But uh, I like younger guys. I've always enjoyed recruiting younger players. But, hey, man, um, you looked at uh, Oral Roberts this year, the success they had. That was an older ball club. Yeah. Um, that was an older ball club that had, had the, those young men had 
played a lot of baseball together and they've been coached well for for a while. I mean, they understood what the coach wanted out of them and they shoot. Um, they are, what a great year they had, right? Getting, getting to Omaha. So, um, a lot of times the older team can, can generate, can give you, just give you more screens. What did you find to be the reception on the recruiting trail this first year as you were selling the program? I think there was some, I mean, anytime something's new, it's just kind of shiny and it's just kind of like, um, I think that was kind of us this year as a coaching staff. I think, um, what are these guys about? What are they going to do? Can they do it? Can they get this program moving well again? And so I think that um, um, it was exciting and it was just a newness to us. And, and Coach Jewett's a fantastic recruiter, one of the best in the country. And so he's hustling and he's got great energy and he's, he's a very dynamic personality. And so he was able to get a lot of young men and their families on board quickly. And I think that the success that we've had this year, I think it's um, – it's excited even some more folks. I think the guys who are coming in are excited about being a part of our program. Um, I think that um, the guys that we're not talking to saw that you know we were competitive and um, and people are always excited about USC. Right? I mean, it's University of Southern California, but it's Trojans, and they it's it's Southern California, it's Los Angeles, and so that that sells itself and we get these families on campus and they see how beautiful campus is and they see dado and it's just right so now it's up to us to obviously help get the program moving in, in the right direction and then and you put those two pieces together um i think you got you got a chance to, to bring some national manager and play at usc the, the last time we talked i asked you about nil and for those that don't know it's especially going to be important in baseball moving forward because uh, in baseball, you're, you're capped with a limited number of scholarships to spread over a large roster, meaning a lot of kids are having to pay a good portion of their own way. And at a school like USC, where it's not cheap, um, that becomes uh, an obstacle for you in recruiting. How is the NIL side coming together so far on the baseball end? We're working on it still. Um, and we've got, we've got the, the things in place here, the people in place to help move that needle and, and get us to and like I said I'm not I'm not trying to put a, a bunch of money in a young man's pocket I'm just trying to help mom and dad like you alluded to just kind of bridge the gap you know financially um, between scholarship and what they have to pay nobody nobody here is on a full scholarship at, at USC in baseball and so um, get to spread it out and so it's important if we can kind of um, um Help mom and dad. That's what this is about more than anything else. And so I've, I've got a chance. I do believe that this, that ball is moving and then we're going to get to a point where, again, I'm not interested in, in trying to buy a player and tell them, hey, I'll give you, you know, and you, and you come in, you're going to get another $100,000. I mean, I don't know. Maybe, I, hopefully, hopefully it's a young man wants to come to, to USC because it's more than just that. It's because of the education. It's because of the experience of playing at Dato Field and all that, not just... I, I, I hope that it never turns into just all about money. Yeah. Um, if it's all about money, then, I, then I'm then I'm then I'm not I'm selling the wrong product. Um, I don't I don't want it to be all about just hey I just want to go to, I want to go to SC because they're going to pay me more than, than somebody else will pay me. Um, I hope that it never gets to that point. Well, very good. Well, one last thing I had to ask you about obviously the announcement about the facility upgrades for football and that, that directly impacts you because it's going to. Require a kind of recalibration of the baseball stadium. What, what, is, what does that mean for the coming years? Are you going to be displaced for a season? Do you have a clear idea of what the ramifications are of all that? 
you know what, Ron? I, I don't have an answer for you right now. Uh, I wish I did, but I, um, but I know that they're working towards that. I, I know that they want to begin this project when it's fully funded, um, and it's close. I do know that. I know that they're they're close in being able to fully fund the uh, new football practice facilities and the new, new field for them, and then obviously the new, sta- the new stadium for a new Dato. And so, um, I don't know yet. Um, you know, we you hope that you could. You, you could do something and, and not be displaced, um, but a project like like this probably looks like it probably might happen. I don't know when. Um, I've always said, hey, sooner rather than later. If they um, if they want to to do it, you know, as soon as they can, that's we'll deal with that. We'll we'll find a place. There's there's a lot of places here in Southern California that, that we we may have to call home for a moment. But I don't know when that is. I wish I, I wish I had an answer for you. Sure, sure. Uh, a lot of moving pieces right now. It's it's never a dull time. The USC Athletics, and, and certainly uh, as you get this program off the ground here entering year two. Andy, really appreciate your time. I know we'll be talking a lot in the future because uh, exciting things ahead for USC baseball. Right, I appreciate it. Always great talking to you. Thank you. And that is our show. Thank you for listening. Thank you for patiently waiting for this podcast to come to fruition. Hopefully it proved worth the wait. Many more to come, many more to come more frequently as we are just about in the throes of football season. And by season, I mean the start of practice, start of fall camp, which is just a few weeks away at this point. And I know that our Trojansports.com team is ready to get rolling with that, and we have so much fun stuff planned. So stay tuned, be on the website, be on our Trojan Talk board, and definitely stay alert for the next podcast. We'll be back with you soon. Thanks.